Father, this, this faith that we have sung about is a precious gift from you. And we ask now, as we go to your word, that your spirit will be at work, granting us faith as we read and as we hear. Do this work, Father, for your glory, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. It's relatively easy to see what people in our world live for. You can observe someone's life, and in most cases, in a very short amount of time, you can determine and see what it is that they're living for. The normal, dominant focus people have is towards the things of this world. Their appearance, their grades, their job or their career, their house, their car, their truck, or their boat, their hobbies, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, husband or wife, kids or grandkids, their retirement portfolio, weekends at the cabin or fun and exciting trips, both near and far and on and on we could go. Our world lives for what is seen, what's here and what's now. What will give me pleasure and happiness? What will make me feel good and look good? There's nothing more. That's all that matters. And so with great energy, the things of this life are pursued. How different, how different it is for the life of a Christian. Oh yes, we live in this world. But the things of this world are not what our lives are about. I invite you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week, we considered the end, the last section of chapter 4, and we're going to pick up this morning with chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 10. And notice, notice how Paul makes this point. Verse 18. We look to the things that are... We, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then look down at verse 7 of chapter 5. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So we considered last week, God's people don't look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. We walk by faith, not by sight. So in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5 that we'll be considering this morning, we see two unseen realities that we must be living for. Please follow along as I read this passage. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. 
For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we see here first that we must be motivated by the unseen reality of heaven. The unseen reality of heaven. In verse 7, which we looked at last week, Paul described himself as a clay pot. And here in verse 1, he describes himself as a tent. It was very natural, I think, for Paul to see himself as a tent after all he made them. That was what he did for income. And the image of our body as a tent connotes this. It connotes, something, it connotes something that is sufficient for its purpose, yet is transitory. It doesn't last. And it's subject to wear and tear. This tent pictures the instability and thus the vulnerability of our moral existence. Paul knows that his earthly home, his tent, will be destroyed. He's going to die. And so he looks to one day having a building from God, a house not made with hands, and one that's eternal in the heavens. Paul switched from metaphors of earthly tent to a building. It's intended to communicate the difference between impermanence and permanence. A good example of this, I think, is tabernacle and temple. Tabernacle, tent, impermanent, temple, house permanent. So this passage points us forward to our resurrection life in heaven. And Paul is saying that Christians will have resurrected new bodies in the age to come. Now there's a tad bit of debate here about what exactly it means to be unclothed and further clothed, naked, not being found naked. But I think Paul is likely referring to what is often called the intermediate state. And that's, that's this. When we die, our spirits are with the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, but we don't have a body, so, so we're naked or we're unclothed. Then at a later time, probably the return of Christ, it seems that we will receive a new body, become further clothed. So, so as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, near the end of the chapter, I, th- I think this is what he means. He says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. But regardless, Paul did not write this passage to answer questions we might have about precisely when we get our resurrected bodies or what the nature of the intermediate state is or how is it that this transformation of our earthly body will take place. Paul doesn't address those things here. He's simply looking forward in faith to the day when he will have a new resurrected body. For Paul, this future reality was certain. Oh, he, he wasn't waffling. He was sure. Verse 1, he says, we know. 
he was convinced. Now, heaven was not something that Paul could see. He believed it by faith, not by sight. But it was a strong and certain faith. Because as verse 5 states, his future house was built by God. And God gave his very own spirit as a guarantee that he would receive a new and eternal home. The Greek word here translated guarantee is the word used in modern Greek for an engagement ring, which in a sense kind of pledges and guarantees the wedding day. Another way to see it is something like a down payment or earnest money. Part of the payment that's given ahead of time is a promise that the rest will be coming later. These analogies, of course, fail because engagements can be broken. And people can make a down payment, get cold feet, and walk away. But God's guarantees are unbreakable guarantees. So how can we know that the promise of a heavenly existence is real? The experience of the transforming and uplifting power of the Holy Spirit now at work in our life. There it is. That's empirical evidence that God's promises are real. As Paul writes in Philippians 1, He who began a good work in you, we could add there, He who gave you His Spirit, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So so receiving a new resurrected body was something Paul was sure of. He was certain that it would happen. But it was also something he strongly desired. Something he really, really wanted. Notice in verse 2, he he says he's groaning. He's longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 4, there's a desire for the mortal to be swallowed up in life. Verse 8, Paul would rather be at home in the Lord. It is groaning here. It doesn't imply despair. There can be a groaning that's just like, agony and despair, right? That's not the kind of groaning Paul's talking about here. It's not mournful dejection, but it's related to a hopeful longing. It was an earnest desire to receive the full culmination of his salvation. In Romans 8, Paul tells us that in addition to all of creation that is groaning to be set free from its bondage to corruption... Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the guarantee, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And he says, we hope for what we don't see, and we wait for it with patience. So there's no sense, I don't think here, that Paul wanted to die. Somehow thinking that death is good and I, gotta just, I just want to die because it's so wonderful. That's not what he's doing here. Death is not good. Death is not wonderful. It's the result of sin. It destroys life. It reigns as an invisible power in our final enemy. But what Paul was groaning for, what he was longing for, was a new resurrected body forever in God's presence. Now, we live in a culture that tries really, really, really hard to delay death, don't we? And I think there's a sense in which that makes perfect sense. 
And how does our world think? If you're living for the here and now, and if it really doesn't get any better than this life, then by all means, do whatever you can to keep the good times rolling. Just a couple weeks ago, there was a fascinating article in the Washington Post titled Defying Death. And the author talked about how the tech titans behind PayPal, Google, Facebook, eBay, Napster, and Netscape, all these guys, they're using their billions of dollars to try to understand and upgrade the human body. They are driven by a certitude that rebuilding, regenerating, and reprogramming patients' limbs, organs, cells, and DNA will, enab- it will, will, will allow people to live longer and better. Oracle founder Larry Ellison has proclaimed his wish to live forever. And he's donated four, more than $430 million to anti-aging research. He told his biographer, death has never made any sense to me. There's no doubt good and helpful things coming from this research. I'm sure there are. But Larry's wish is not going to come true. Maybe it'll go well for him. And let's say he lives to be 150. He still is going to die. Despite our progress over centuries and prolonging life, the human mortality rate, it still remains steady. It's still holding steady at 100%. You're going to die. You are going to die. Then what? Then what? Well, God has made it clear in His Word that all of us are going to go to either heaven or hell. You're not just going to cease to exist and become worm food. And you won't be reincarnated as a frog if you were a bad person or as a princess if you were a really good person. The Bible tells us that death is a result of sin which we all by nature are sinners. Because of our willful rebellion against God, we will face physical death, which is separation of the soul from the body, and we will face spiritual death which is separation of our soul from God. But there's good news. There's really good news. God offers eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. He defeated death as three days later, God raised Him from the dead. And He provides a way to heaven. Through Jesus Christ, we can have a restored relationship with God. So I ask you this morning, are you certain Are you certain, like Paul, that you will go to heaven when you die? Do you want that? Do you desire that? if, If you repent of your sins and trust in Christ Jesus alone, God promises that you will, that that's where you'll go. And then upon receiving this gift of faith, death will make sense to you. And like Paul, You can face it with courageous confidence 
and hope in the life to come. I think when we look at the hard things that Paul was going through in his life, last week, suffering, we looked at that carefully. When we look at that, I think we can understand why he was groaning for heaven. This is certainly one of the reasons that God brings suffering into our lives. Johnny Erickson Tata became a quadriplegic at age 17. She's in her 60s now, I think. Lots of suffering she's experienced. And she said this so well. She said, suffering keeps our swelling... Suffering keeps swelling our feet so that earth's shoes won't fit. Very well said. And in our pain, God has a way of crushing our hopes and reminding us that this world can never satisfy. Only heaven can. Suffering then, naturally, I think, should make us want to go to heaven. But, but does this mean we shouldn't long for heaven when suffering is absent? I don't think so. I don't think so. And, and the question here to ask is, do you share Paul's longing for heaven? And I'll be the first to admit, I don't. This was incredibly convicting to me as I was working through this passage this week. It's a place where we need to examine our hearts. Would you rather be living in your earthly house made by God or in your tent? As people observe your life, would anyone guess by the way that you think, talk, what you post on Facebook, how you spend your time and your money, how you view your stuff, when they look at what really excites you and what you love and what you hate, would anyone guess after observing your life that you were longing for heaven? Or do they just see another person who's in love with their tent? A pastor once received a letter from a nine-year-old girl that said, Dear Pastor, I hope to go to heaven someday, but later than sooner. Love, Ellen. I think there's a sense in which Ellen speaks for almost everyone, right? But, but, but Why? Why do we not desire our eternal home built by God more than our earthly tent? And I think when you get right down to it, it seems to me that it's because we're more in love with this world than we are with God. We're so easily consumed by the comforts, the pleasures, the possessions of this world that we enjoy or someday hope to enjoy. And so it's difficult for us to conceive of anything that is really much better than this life. And so we don't cultivate a confident vision of the glories to come. And since God will be the central focus of heaven, not the things of this earth, I think it only follows that we don't long for heaven because we're pursuing the things of this earth more than we're pursuing God. As the commentator Scott Haifman wrote, if the groaning of the Spirit prepares us for and guarantees our future in God's unmediated presence, our dim view of the glory to come means that we have far too little genuine knowledge of God here and now. 
not having tasted much of heaven, all we can imagine is earth. So in the words of the Puritan Thomas Boston, may we be people who employ ourselves much in weaning your hearts from the world. Let the mantle of earthly enjoyments hang loose about you, that it may be easily dropped when death comes to carry you away into another world. Employ ourselves much in weaning your hearts from the world. Whoops, sorry. Let's go back to that. He continues, Moderate your affections toward your lawful comforts of life, but let not your hearts be too much taken with them. A heart disengaged from the world is a heavenly one. We are ready for heaven when our heart is there before us. We live by faith, not sight. And so we must be motivated by the reality of heaven. But second, we must be motivated by the unseen reality of judgment. Notice this in verses 9 and 10. Paul's aim was to please the Lord, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul's aim was to please Christ because he knew judgment was coming. Romans 14, 10 through 12 show us that God is the judge. And this identity of function between Christ and God highly, dramatically highlights the divine sovereignty of Christ. This image of judgment comes from the practice of the Roman governors who sat on tribunal benches to render judgment in legal cases. So just as the Corinthians were aware that Paul stood before the judgment of the Roman governor Gallio in Corinth, so too Paul reminds them that one day they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Note the basis of this judgment. Paul says that it's what is done in the body. It's, it's works. We see in many other places that the consistent teaching of Scripture is that judgment is based on works. So what does Paul mean here? What's the, what's the point he's trying to make? What's going on in this judgment? Well, I think there's, there's essentially three different views. The first is that Paul is saying in this judgment we earn our salvation. So you will enter the judgment asking something like, will there be enough good deeds to outweigh my bad? I, you won't find out till you get there and your fingers are crossed, but it's a, the scale picture. Well, that view simply does not fit the context. There's, there's no question here for Paul. Verse 14 of chapter 4, he's confident. Chapter 17, of, verse 17 of chapter 4, he's sure of an eternal weight of glory. Verse 1 of chapter 5, he knows he has an eternal house. Verses 6 and 8 of chapter 5, he's of good courage. So there's a confidence here. It doesn't, doesn't fit. And then second, th this view doesn't work because we see here that grace is in play, not merit. Grace is what's going on here. Verse 7 of chapter 4, 
we see it's God's power on display. Verse 5 of chapter 5, God's the one doing this. God gives the Spirit as a guarantee. And then if we look down towards the end of chapter 5 to verse 21, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's grace. It's not merit. It's not works. And then finally, this simply doesn't fit with the rest of Paul's theology. We could take Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, this judgment is not talking about earning God's favor. It's not based on merit. Second view of this judgment is that of rewards. That there's different levels of rewards for Christians. And this is a very common view. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's, I think, the view that I heard growing up. But it doesn't seem to be what's going on here, and here's a couple of reasons. First, it doesn't seem to fit with the context. The mood here, I think, is, is one of warning, not rewards. Verse 11, chapter 5, as, as Paul continues, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It sounds more like a either you're in or you're out sort of judgment. And then second, good and evil are distinct categories in the New Testament which are used to describe saved or unsaved. Now, of course, Christians can do evil things. But when the New Testament uses this pair, good and evil, it's talking about unbelievers and believers. A couple of texts to show this. John 5, 27 God has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And then Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 3 John 11 Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. And here it is. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. There are multiple texts that speak of judgments, the judgment of evil and good occurring at the same time. Matthew's gospel, we got the sheep and the goats, there's the wheat and the tares. There's lots of places in scripture where we see this. But there's really no scriptural evidence of a separate judgment for Christians. It came up in a couple of songs we sang this morning. Our reward, the crown we will receive is eternal life. God is our reward. So then, as I study this, it seems most consistent to conclude that both saved and unsaved will be present at this judgment, making it unlikely that it is strictly an award ceremony of sorts for Christians. 
Now, if you have any questions about this, objections about this, I kindly direct you to my fellow elder, John Pratt. All right? John John was one of the first people that I heard this teaching of one judgment from. John's taught this, actually, in our church in the past. John was my go-to theologian for this section, so that um, you can, of course, talk to me as well. But um, I'm thankful for the help that John's been to me. So, this judgment is not a merit-based judgment. And if it is not awards, varying degrees of awards for Christians, what then is it? What is Paul talking about here? And that leads us to the third view, which is the meaning of this judgment is that we must have good works as the evidence of true faith. We must have good works as the evidence of true faith. All right, now, before I explain this view, it may be very possible that what I'm going to say how I explain this is somewhat unfamiliar to you. It's possible that it's something you've never even heard before. But I just encourage you to examine it, to think about it, search the scriptures. That's what we all want to do. That's what this church is about. Examine the scriptures to see and to test what I'm saying. And then as you do so, let's talk about it. Ask your questions. Share your concerns. There will be things in this. I know there's things I don't see yet. I welcome your insights, your perspectives, and desire to continue to grow with you in working hard at understanding God's Word. So, if you've been dozing or drifting or dazing, if you're not all here and you hear me, Okay, now's the time you need to lock in. Okay, focus, as we used to say in my house growing up, put your thinking cap on, okay, whatever. But, but work hard with me for a bit because understanding this is really important. In fact, understanding this is a matter of life and death. And whether you're seven or 17 or 87, we have got to understand what this is about as we look at Scripture. So, the judgment here, I believe, is saying, and what's going on, is that we must have good works as evidence of true faith. So what we are due here is what we deserve based on our union with Christ. But there must be accompanying good works. There must be good works that demonstrate our profession is real. I think we see signs of this in the context. Look at verse 15 of chapter 5. Paul's saying in verse 15, Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. So, So there's a change there. There's evidence there that something happened. And if you look over at chapter 6, verse 1, Paul was very concerned that they not receive the grace of God in vain. And if you go down to verse 6, he lists fruits 
in evidences that flow out of the grace that God had worked in his life. And then as we consider the other judgment in Scripture, this one's often called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, the other judgment we often talk about and hear of is called the great white throne judgment, which is found in Revelation 20. Verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. On what basis? According to what they had done. The book of life is pretty straightforward. The author goes on to say that if, the name, if your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, if, you, if it's not there, suffering in eternal hell. But it seems most likely that the books... He refers to the book of life and the books. It seems most likely that the books are a record of our deeds which must demonstrate that our claim to have our name in the book of life is not a lie. We could look at these books as corroborating evidence that yes, indeed, she was a child of God. And, and here, is her here is her changed life to demonstrate that. So in this very same passage we're considering this morning, Paul speaks of living by faith, verse 7, and being judged by deeds in verse 10. And we have got to understand how that works. He lives by faith, yet he says he's judged by deeds. We've got to understand how this is possible. Paul's walk of faith in verse 7 is the very means by which the good deeds in verse 10 are produced. Paul's assumption is that whatever one trusts in for the future inevitably determines how one acts in the present. He thus sees faith as an active dependence on God's promises that inevitably expresses itself and is seen in one's actions. So when one trusts God, one obeys Him. We walk by faith and are judged by what we do because to trust in God's promises is to live according to His Word. Our, words are the, our works are the objective, public expression of our faith. And therefore, they're the basis of God's judgment. Indeed, the goal of Paul's entire life as the apostle to the Gentiles, was to bring them to the obedience that comes from faith. Romans 1.5. Obedience that comes from faith. So every act of trust in God's promises expresses itself in an act of obedience to His commands. So every act of obedience is a manifestation of trust. Conversely, every time we disobey God, it is because we're not trusting in Him. Therefore, every command of God is in essence a promise in disguise. That's how we should see commands. They're actually promises of God. 
in disguise. So let's take one. To declare you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. It's therefore essentially the same thing as saying God promises to be sufficient in all things as your sovereign provider, redeemer, Lord, and judge. So trust Him. Trust Him alone. All the Ten Commandments can be seen as a call to trust its corresponding promise. So God commands what He commands because He promises what He promises. So as a result, there is only one thing we must do to be saved on the day of final judgment. Live by faith, which produces good deeds in the body. Haifman again is very helpful. He says, Deeds are the means of evaluation in the courtroom of God's judgment since they establish the genuine nature of the claim to trust God. In short, rather than being added to faith, obedience to God's will is the visible manifestation of faith. We just think of Abraham. In Genesis 12, God comes to him and says, Abraham, go to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Command, promise. Well, imagine if Abe had said, thank you, God, yes, I love that. That's a wonderful promise. And I believe it. I believe you, God. But I really like where my tent is sitting right now. And I think I'll just stay put. True faith? Does Abraham really believe God? As we read this morning, by faith, by faith, Abraham obeyed. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So so this is why James writes, faith without works is dead. So obedience to, to, to God's commands is what faith in God's promises look like in everyday life. Therefore, when we are judged by our works on Judgment Day, our deeds or our obedience of faith will be the instrument, not the ultimate ground of our final justification. The ground or the basis of our salvation is the life and death of Jesus in our behalf, both is that which forgives us for our sin and that which frees us from our sin. Our deeds are the public criteria of judgment, not because they contribute in any way to our salvation, but because they are in themselves what it means to live by faith. 
So as Haifman concludes, the central and essential role of obedience in judgment is not the denial of justification by faith alone, but it's powerful affirmation. So when we understand this, we realize that it is impossible to separate trusting God from obeying God. This idea that faith is just some sort of mental assent and that one can have true saving faith and live a life of sin, that idea is unbiblical. Living by faith in God and living a life of disobedience is a contradiction. It matters a lot how you're living. There is no such thing as this third category of people called carnal Christians. There are weak, struggling, take two steps forward, one step back Christians. There's doubting Christians. There's less sanctified than we want to be Christians. That's me. But, but not carnal Christians who are given over to the lust of the flesh, indifferent to disobedience, disinterested in the means of grace, like reading the Bible and prayer and willing submission to the accountability and discipline of the local church. You must have something to show for yourself on the day of judgment. Fruits of repentance and evidence of saving faith must be found. Judgment was the very first doctrine in Scripture to be denied. As Satan told Eve, you will not surely die. And all our culture carries on his denial as people live with no belief in future accounting. But judgment day is coming. It's coming. It will happen. Do you really believe you're going to stand before Christ and give an account of yourself? Do you believe that? Imagine with me the scene that I've adapted from De Young. One day, you will stand before Jesus, not a little baby in a manger, not a nice-looking man with a beard and long hair, or even a suffering Jesus. He will be a gloriously exalted Son of Man, you will see the nail marks on his hands and feet, but instead of a crown of thorns, he'll be wearing a crown of glory. He will look more dazzling than you thought possible, and his splendor will be more radiant than you ever dreamed. And there will be no mistaking who he is at that moment. No one will doubt any longer that this Jesus was and is the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the visible image of the invisible God. No one will wonder at that moment if there are any other gods or other ways to God. There will be no skeptics, agnostics, no atheists at that moment. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will be instinctive and reflexive. As you stand there, you won't be able to hide in a crowd. You'll be all by yourself. No parents, no friends to say how great of a person you were. 
And as your name is called and you walk across that great graduation stand stage, you will look at him in the eyes, eyes that burn like flames of fire in purity. The verdict given by Christ in that moment is the only one that matters. Some of us will wonder why we thought so much about what our friends thought of us. It's not going to matter. Whether you were cool, rich, good-looking, or intelligent will make absolutely no difference at that moment. Then Jesus, with eyes of flaming fire, will look into your eyes and say, Why should I bless you and keep you? Why should I make my face shine upon you and be gracious to you? Why should I lift my countenance upon you and give you peace? And the only answer that will satisfy is your blood. Your blood. I belong to you, Jesus my judge, and my Savior. You already paid this, Lord. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. And in faith we will stand before the Son of God with confidence, knowing we are safe and secure because we have no boast except in Christ in Him crucified. No hope except in the undeserved mercy of Jesus that is the only answer that will save and put a smile on the Lord's face. After you give that answer, he will in some way call for the books. And as he looks over your life, he won't be looking for perfection. He will look to see if there is evidence. Do you have a form of godliness but deny its power? Did you profess to know God, but deny Him with your works? And then the verdict will be given. He will either say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Or He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evil doer. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after that comes judgment. Are you ready? Are you ready to face Christ? His righteousness credited to your account through faith in Him is your only hope. But remember, remember, remember that those who have this saving faith are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you profess to be a Christian and you do not care what you do in this body, beware. You have no reason to think you'll be living with God in the next life if you have thought nothing of living for Him in this life. We are saved by faith alone. But a faith that is alone doesn't save. So 
So in light of our future judgment, in light of the the seriousness, I I hope you feel the weight of this, in light of the, the sobriety we see here, we must, with Paul, make it our aim to please the Lord. And in the words of Peter, we must be all the more diligent to make our calling and our election sure. So as God's people gathered here this morning, we live by faith, not by sight. And we find our life's meaning and purpose in future glory, not in the things of this world. We we must then be motivated by the unseen reality of heaven. It's certain, and it's something we should desire. And we must be motivated by the unseen reality of judgment. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts as we respond to your word. Give us a desire for heaven. Father, we don't have it as we should. We love this world too much. Father, we pray that we would long for this this home that you've built. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Father, for, for promising that this will happen through the gift of the Spirit. And we pray, Father, that you would prepare us to meet Christ someday. We pray, Father, that you would draw to yourself anyone who is trusting in their own works or something else. Grant to them saving faith. And then, Father, in all of our lives, continue the work you started. Continue to grow us and to give us more and more fruits of the Spirit. We pray, Father, that we would be a progressively transformed people. That in various ways, more and more over the course of our life, demonstrate that you have indeed saved us from sin. We pray you do this work in our hearts for your glory. It's in Christ we ask. Amen. Amen. Stand with me. Let's take a moment and reflect on those potentially sobering